Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May 29th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll discuss Solo, A Star Wars Story's disappointing box office and have a full spoiler discussion about that film. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And uh, joining us is our Star Wars expert. He writes for Slash Film, but he also writes for a number of other sites, uh, you know, spreading his wisdom about a galaxy far, far away. And that is Brian Young. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, we're here, of course, to talk about Solo: Star Wars Story. Uh, you know, Slash Filmcast did a review of the of the the film, which I strongly disagree with. Uh, but um, I, I've already shared my opinion on this film. I, I don't think either of you has. Uh, so let's start, uh, Brian. Let's start with you. What, what are your brief thoughts on uh, Solo? Uh, you know, this movie was more fun than I was expecting. The last thing I expected to feel when I left this film was wanting more films like this with Han Solo. And uh, so I was I was very pleasantly surprised. I had, I, I feel like, reasonable expectations. But, uh, you know, as a caper in a heist film, it was a lot of fun. As a Star Wars film, it gave me a lot of those touchstones to the things I wanted. And as a deep canon nerd uh, for Star Wars, it, it offered me so much more to include in that rich tapestry. So I was, I don't know, maybe I'm just the, the, the sort of person they make Star Wars films for, but it worked very well for me. I, I've seen the film three times now, and I don't know, I don't understand anybody who cannot enjoy this film. Uh, you know, it's it's not the best Star Wars film. I don't think it, yeah. you know, holds a candle to, you know, the recent saga films, but uh I don't know. I liked it more than Rogue One. Uh, Brad, you you recently wrote a spoiler review for the site, um, but I don't think you've spoken about your feelings about the film on the podcast. So uh, what did you think of Solo? Yeah, I've seen it twice now, and um, I found myself uh, enjoying it tremendously both times, purely as uh, entertainment. But as a Star Wars fan, I feel like it does a disservice to uh, characters, both old and new, and the constant winks and nods to things happening in the future feel like it lessens the impact of the movie and 
I don't know, make certain things less significant and a little bit more hokey. And honestly, for a movie that's called Solo, a Star Wars story, it doesn't really give you much of a reason to care about Han Solo as a character and doesn't really give us much to dig into as far as understanding, you know, more about who he is that we didn't already know just based on his personality traits and how he behaves in the original trilogy. So, you know, it's, um, if anything, this feels like it's a movie that's specifically made to recruit new Star Wars fans that this could be like a gateway for them to discover the original trilogy and view Star Wars, I guess, in a different context than we're used to. Okay, so before we get into our solo discussion, our spoiler discussion, let's talk about the box office because I think this is important to talk about. Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, was, you know, there was all this news coming out that, you know, the pre-sales for the first day outdid, you know, the Marvel movies and uh, the uh, projections were very high. They were projecting it to be the biggest uh, Memorial Day weekend opener of all time, being around 150 million. And uh, throughout the weekend, that uh, that that uh, that number just kept on dwindling down until it got uh, down to near 100 million. Brad, what do we know? Yeah, we know it definitely didn't perform uh, near the early expectations, which were thinking that it would set a new Memorial Day weekend record. Uh, and it was it wasn't exactly what you would call a bomb, but it was pretty disappointing by Star Wars standards and expectations, because for the three-day weekend, uh, it only took in 83.3 million, which is just a little more than half of what Rogue One did in its three-day opening weekend. That that movie pulled in 155 million, uh, and then for the four-day holiday weekend, which usually allows it to get a little bit more. It didn't really uh, do anything spectacular business-wise because it only pulled in 103 million domestically, so it's not doing so hot. And you know, it would have been a little bit better if Rogue One kind of set the the bar lower by being like, okay, these Star Wars spinoffs aren't going to be quite as big of blockbusters as the, you know, milestone Star Wars episodes. But Rogue One did significantly better, so it's you know really. Lucasfilm kind of has to take a look at this and see what went wrong, why this movie isn't performing nearly as well as Rogue One did, and, you know, figure out what the issue is. Yeah, th- th- that's what I want to talk about here. And first of all, we should be clear that this is a disappointment, but not a disaster. You know, uh, this film with this these kind of numbers will break even probably, you know, just with the box office and, uh, you know, licensing out the movie to cable and premium networks alone. Right. Uh, that doesn't include merchandising. Uh, so so Disney is going to make money off this movie. It's just, uh, you know, not on the level that they thought. You know, I think they thought every Star Wars movie was going to be a billion dollar hit. And uh, this is the first time that they uh, think that it isn't. So uh, I wanted to ask you guys, what, what do you what do you think? Why do you think this is? Do you think Rogue One was just riding off that high of The Force Awakens and not having a Star Wars film? in you know uh a decade and or do you think um do you think we're seeing actual star wars fatigue like we we do get these marvel movies uh you know multiple times a year and i, I we don't get, we're not seeing fatigue yet at least from the box office numbers i know I, I know i do hear you know critics complain from time to time uh the tracking kept dropping over the weekend does that mean there was bad word of mouth? Uh, you know, the film got an A plus or A minus cinema score, which is pretty high. Uh, what do you guys think? 
You know, I wonder. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you got it. I, I wonder if some of it is Memorial Day weekend has been increasingly difficult, especially for Disney. Uh, you know, you go back over the last years and they haven't been able to really break a hit. I mean, they got Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End is the best opening that they've done. And that was only one hundred and thirty nine million on a Memorial Day. Solo is still the seventh best Memorial Day. But I've talked to a lot of people who are Star Wars fans who just feel like too many movies that they've wanted to see have come out. And this weekend they went to go see Deadpool slating Solo for next weekend. There is no malicious intent against solo for them in saying i'm gonna wait a week it's just there's a lot of really nerd centric movies out right now and i wonder if christmas is just the right place i'm one of those who feels like star wars is a summer movie i've been saying from the beginning it should be in may but maybe this proves that uh i'm wrong and it should be in december and maybe that's where where rogue one had those legs is just those holiday weekends and family at home in the winter you know to to drag everybody to the movie repeatedly is is what did it rather than memorial day where it seems like nowadays it's not the event movie weekend it used to be brad what are your thoughts yeah i feel like it's it's definitely a perfect storm that you know is the the release date i think in the middle of a crowded blockbuster summer when two of the summer's biggest movies you know have been in theaters for a month and two weeks uh or well, actually, just one week for Deadpool two, uh, respectively, and you know the, it's it's a lot harder to get people to go out to the movies multiple weeks in a row over the summer, especially when the weather's so nice and people have time off work and they'd rather spend it doing doing other things, uh, you know. Because even Solo, you know, was uh, didn't do so well this weekend. It still was the the best Memorial Day weekend in four years, so it still did you know decent business in theaters. But I think one of the other problems is, and this speaks more to just the movie uh, itself is that I talked to a lot of people who are not necessarily hardcore Star Wars fans. They're more general audience folk who didn't really feel like a need to rush out and see Solo right away the same way they did with the uh, with something like The Last Jedi. And I think when you have a movie like that coming out just five months after The Last Jedi, you know, people are just not necessarily in the mood to rush out to see another Star Wars. I think, you, you know, you need some extra time to build that desire back up. And that may not be a problem with Marvel, but I think the difference is Marvel has such a wide variety of different superheroes that allow for different genres and tones to play out that when it comes to Star Wars, we haven't really seen a wide variety of what can be done as far as different genres in the Star Wars universe is yet. So, you know, this this looks like just another Star Wars movie for most people. And then on another end of the spectrum, you know, there's plenty of people who didn't like the Star Wars prequels. And this was, you know, basically another Star Wars prequel. And so maybe fans didn't necessarily feel compelled to rush out and see it because it wasn't any, you know, offering anything that they felt confident in. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, you know, what does Disney and Lucasfilm need to do? You see a lot of uh, uh, people on Twitter, Star Wars fans, who are not the lowest logical people, but uh, demanding that, you know, Kathleen Kennedy should be fired. Look at all the problems that these films have been uh, stricken with. And, you know, this this number is kind of very disappointing, although it should be mentioned that this number is higher than any of the opening weekends of the Star Wars movies that Fox released other than Revenge of the Sith. Um, so, I mean, I know it's been a different and, time and it's different, uh, you know, cost of movie ticket. It, 
It was really funny too to see Ron Howard react to it. People were like, "Hey, box office is disappointing," and he's and and his reply on Twitter was like, "This is my personal best record for box office." So yeah. You know, it might be disappointing, but this is the best I've ever done. And if you look at the type of movie it is, uh, you know, capers and heist movies, it has the best opening weekend of any caper or heist movie ever. So maybe Star Wars isn't the metric to look at more as like, hey, how how have Ron Howard and, and caper and heist movies done? And it's at the top of all those. Yeah. What Ron Howard has been doing on Twitter is remarkable, along with John Kasten, the, the screenwriter. They've been like uh, responding to fans, uh, both positive and negative, uh, in, in a classy way. And uh, it, it's great to see that and not, uh, you know, the usual way that sometimes Hollywood reacts, where you have like The Rock, uh, you know, going on Twitter and being like, you know, I made this for the fans, not the critics or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, but uh, yeah, I, I want uh, the last thing I want to get to is like, you know, what should what should Disney do going forward? I, I, I would suggest that they need to uh, start making these Star Wars movies as if they aren't all these huge, big, epic movies. You know, th- they need to adopt the Marvel way of thing- doing things in, in that you know, Marvel makes an Ant-Man and they also make an Avengers Infinity War. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't all have to be of the same box off, uh, you know, budget level and of that, you know, they can make smaller Star Wars films. They can make bigger Star Wars films. Uh, what do you what do you guys think? I, I think that that's I think that's what Kathy Kennedy has been doing. Uh, I think Rogue One made more money than they expected it to. Yeah. But if you look at how much Disney paid out for Star Wars and you see how much money they've put in uh, to the franchise as a whole, I don't think they're looking at this balance sheet on an individual basis of movies. They're looking at it. How much are we investing in making the movies and how much are they bringing in over the four movies? They've made their money back plus some repeatedly. Uh, so if, if one of them is smaller, uh, even though it costs more, I think, I think, uh, that Kathleen Kennedy was, was willing to double the budget to put out the movie she wanted to means she's more interested in the long game and making sure the movies are right rather than how much money she's going to make specifically on this movie or that movie. Brad, do you have any advice on where, or thoughts on where Disney should be going with this franchise? in the wake of this uh, disappointment? Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's one thing to look at this from a, sh- uh, you know, a business perspective and be worried that these movies aren't making as much money as they should. But, you know, it, it might sound a little bit hokey, but I think the more important thing is that they just keep telling the stories that they think need to be told and give fans, you know, something to be excited about. Uh, obviously, Disney's but that, already... But that might be it, though. Like, do fans want... Are the stories that need to be told need to be like prequels of all these characters like i feel like you know when disney bought marvel Mar- marvel is g- great because it's all about characters do you know what i mean like people want to see iron man people want to see ant-man people want to you know see these characters but i felt like when disney bought uh star wars they were buying the universe not characters i want to see stories in this universe i don't care to see you know a han solo movie as much as i enjoyed it i don't want to see an obi-wan movie i don't want to see a boba fett movie i want to see you know new stories in this galaxy and not these prequel films no and i i mostly agree with you i want to see stuff that doesn't include characters that we're familiar with and go to goes to new locations and doesn't feel uh this inherent need to tie 
to something, you know, in a mo- movies that were already established in the original trilogy or, or even the prequels. Um, and I, I think that Star Wars face, faces a, a challenge that isn't normally uh, faced by a big studio franchise because this is the longest running uh, franchise that ha- now has new installments tied to the, the old installments where you have generations of fans who are looking at this, you know, as one single entity. Like, obviously, you know, something like Star Trek has spanned this long, but the new movies aren't really connected to the old movies or even the old series and in the same way that these new Star Wars movies are. So Disney and Lucasfilm faced the unique challenge of pleasing fans who are in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and whatnot, but also pulling in new fans who may not be quite as familiar with the original trilogy or who grew up seeing the prequels first and some, maybe even new fans who aren't, you know, even aware that like star Wars is something they, they like yet. And I don't think any other blockbuster franchise has to worry about that. You know, even, even Marvel, they, they've only been coming, they've only come around in the past 10 years. And so all of their fans are pretty much, you know, aren't too different in age as they were from when they first started watching those movies. Um, so it's it's a challenge. I think they're gonna have to figure out how to embrace it. And Solo does an interesting job of attempting to do that by having a movie that is full of winks and nods to the original trilogy, hinting at things to come that we know happened between Han and Lando and Chewie, but also introducing Han as a character to audiences that may not be as familiar with him and maybe only know him from the the newer Star Wars movies. Um, so I, I honestly don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough, you know, uh, act to balance and I hope that they are able to figure it out. And I, I really hope that the new trilogies that Ryan Johnson, uh, and the game of Thrones duo are working on offer us something new that we can latch onto that becomes, you know, the, the star Wars for a new generation. Can we at least all agree that they need to get rid of the stupid, a star Wars story tagline from the titles? Um, my only complaint about that is writing articles about it and having to type it a lot. Uh, but you, like in do, theory, do I, ge- it doesn't bother me one way or the other too much. But do you think like general public like that makes them want to see the film? Like that makes it almost seem uh, it's SEO optimization, right? Like they have to get Star Wars in the title. I guess, but aren't people <laughs> going to know it's going to be Star Wars? Like when you have a movie called Han Solo, you could have just called it Han Solo, and it's weird too because. When you go see this movie or you see a poster or marketing, it tells you to write about this on social media with hashtag uh, Han Solo, not Solo, because Solo is a cup. <laughs> um, so it's like, I don't know. It seems like their brand messaging on, on these films are like all over the place. And also another nitpick of mine from a fan point of view is like, you know, Rogue One didn't have an opening crawl. This doesn't have an opening crawl, but it has like words on the screen in blue uh, font. Uh, why why don't we just do the opening crawl? Like they do the opening crawl in every comic book. They, you know, it, it's been done in the video games. Like, why are we going against that consistency of this this uh, franchise? I don't. I just don't understand. I I think that has to do with confusing audiences at this point, where all we have are the saga films and these two. Keeping the crawl off of them at this point is just a way to differentiate. But I agree. I, I wouldn't mind a, a crawl, but the opening to, to Solo was really cool. The 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 snaps and sparks of him hot wiring it and then, you know, flying through the logo. Uh, 
and that bit of John Powell music remixing uh, John Williams's Han Solo theme. It I don't know. I've seen the movie six times now, and it it's really working on me. Six times. Wow. You've yeah. you've doubled my amount of times. Um, okay, well, let's get into it with our uh, spoiler discussion. Uh, so, if you have not seen Solo: Star Wars Story, you know, tune out now. Save this uh, for after you have seen the film because we're gonna be diving in to all the uh, spoilery details and giving you some context uh, on on those from uh, from our Star Wars expert. Let's talk about Han's arc in this film. I I know I've read a lot of critics kind of. Uh, slamming it as the same arc that he has in the original trilogy. But I, I don't know. I, I think I think it's different. I think this film, he starts off as an optimistic, you know, he's saying, I have a good feeling about this. And he uh, is kind of this good guy trying to pretend to be a bad guy. And I think when we meet him in the, in the new trilogy, he has, you know, successfully done that uh, you know, successfully become the bad guy, but he has at the core of him, as we find out, uh, goodness in him. Um, am I wrong? I don't, that's that's oh, very much that's very much the the impression I got, where it felt like it was this inverse of his arc through the classic trilogy, where in those uh, you know in those films you've got him trying to convince Leia, no, I'm a nice man, but here he's trying to convince the the woman he loves that he's a terrible person. You know, it's it's um, it also ties a lot to his arc with Ray, right? They came from such much more similar circumstances than I would have guessed, uh, and they both had to scrabble on the street to do those things. And it, it, but it also I I felt like it tied to Anakin's story, right? Where where uh, which makes Ben Solo a lot more interesting, where his two uh, you know sort of paternal influences in, in his lineage both had really horrible upbringings with very terrible options for them. And the choices that Anakin and Han Solo both made diverged wildly. And now Ben is writing that line. I think it added a lot of interesting context for me there. Uh, I didn't feel like it was the same thing. I do think that at the end of this film, when Han shoots first and kills Beckett, uh, that isn't something he would have done at the beginning of this film. I feel like, you know, there is an arc. Brad, any thoughts? Um, I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, he's, you know, he's been an Imperial soldier, and you know, you're sure, sure he's reluctant uh, simply because the cause of their fight isn't anything that he's interested in fighting because, you know, like he says, like, the the Empire is the one considered the hostiles because they're just infiltrating planets, but... I mean, he's a, he's pretty aggressive, and he's willing to do what it takes to survive. And in, in this case, I don't know. I think the 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 specific leap, you know, is basically becoming him becoming Beckett and not trusting anybody. Um, but at the same time, it's it doesn't really feel like it's anything. I don't know, significant to me. Like it's, I'm not sure that he does a lot to try to convince anybody that he's a bad guy. I just think that he doesn't view himself in all that favorable of a light because he's grown up living a life of crime and has had to scrape by, you know, doing some pretty shady, you know, things. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like his arc in this is only interesting based on the hypothetical things that we'll continue to learn about him. For me, the most interesting things about Han in this movie are stuff is stuff that, that barely gets explored you know like i i there's that quick mention of you know his his 
father building ships like the Millennium Falcon, you know, and there's, uh, you know, we don't necessarily know why he holds onto those dice. And as stupid as the scene is where he's uh, given the name Solo just by, you know, an Imperial officer, the idea that I, I feel like there's an inkling that he does know what his last name is, but he just doesn't want to say it for whatever reason is more interesting to me than anything else that is part of his origin in this movie. So for me, I think that the, the, the better arc is going to come from what will be revealed in the sequels that may or may not come considering Solo was so disappointing at the box office um, rather than, you know, him becoming the Han Solo that we already know he's going to become. But I, I think that there's a really interesting case to be made for the fact that we don't necessarily need that large of an arc out of him, that even if a lot of the fun set pieces in this film reinforce what we know about Han. Like I always assumed that the Falcon was really fast and that's how they got through the Kessel run, not Han's brazen stupidity. And that just reinforces my love for the character. And and I think that that's okay when you have franchises this big, uh, that have other material to rely on too. For sure. But at the same time, I, I think that that's also just, treading water of him doing the stuff we already know Han does like there's not much of an you know of an origin origin there it's just like oh this is this just he's just always been this guy you know so uh, I while I I had fun with the movie I just feel like it doesn't do much to further the character of Han Solo for me and that's that's coming from somebody who loves Han Solo is one of his favorite characters in the original trilogy um so yeah I I don't know especially because since he you know dies in Force Awakens like you would think that the origin story might add a little bit more meat to him as a character and, you know, make you feel something because he is gone now. I, and all, all, of, all it does is make me frustrated that the Solo name, which, is, you know, has been passed on to Ben Solo, is, you know, made up. See, I, I felt like, like the film did add a lot to that ending scene with Ben and Han um, by comparing and contrasting that with the situation with Han and Beckett, where... Beckett doesn't want to give like Beckett is sort of adopted by Han as this father figure and doesn't want to give him the opportunity to lead a better life than he did. And Han having lived through this and going in and giving his son that opportunity uh, in Force Awakens, it makes that scene uh, it gives that scene a lot further of a sweep for me from here to there and kind of really shows the core of what Han is as a character and makes makes that decision more interesting for me. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out, you, you know, you're talking a bit about uh, his time in the Imperial uh, Army, and I think that's kind of interesting. I, I think it's, you know, a lot of critics are, you know, writing this off as just, uh, you know, a fun film that has nothing to it. But, like, you know, that moment where he's arguing with uh, his Imperial, um, what, uh, lieutenant the, the or captain? Lieutenant, yeah. Like... I think is very interesting politically to put in a, you know, a blockbuster film for, you know, general uh, America, because it, it kind of shows how you could be part of like, you know, the bad guys aren't like, oh, let's go around and do bad stuff. They they believe that they are, you know, f- you know, killing the hostiles. They are, you know, saving the planet. They are, you know, they have a they are being told uh, by their their leaders that they they are accomplishing good, even even though they are obviously part of this galactic empire. And uh, Brad, I know in in the Slack channel you were talking 
a bit about uh, Corellia and and uh, how that was kind of smart. I was wondering if you could talk about that here. Wait, which wait, which part? I'm confused. Uh, them trying to get off uh, the uh, occupation of uh, on. Um... Oh yeah, there. Um, yeah, that's that's one thing that I, I appreciate. That I wish that they was a little bit more to it because it's it's such a quick uh, scene that kind of goes by. Um, is that there? There's a lot of parallels to be drawn with the scene of all the um, the border patrol of letting people in and out of Corellia and tied to you know the idea uh, that we have today today's political climate of you know dreamers being denied you know uh, asylum here or being allowed to stay here for jobs for their families because you know the empire is regulating everything about the planet and you can you see a brief thing of you know families being torn apart and all these people being forced to you know live a life of crime because they're being denied any any other opportunity to achieve something in a more legitimate way you know that's uh, the whole introduction to Han with Lady Proxima and the the groups of orphans you know just stealing stuff and selling it to try and get by it definitely has this slumdog millionaire vibe to it um, that is you know surprisingly re- relevant for a movie that you know is supposed to be about Han Solo there there are interesting ways where Star Wars almost accidentally becomes topical because you know when this movie was written the the dreamers thing wasn't really a big deal yet and so it's you know uh, kind of just shows how you can find these uh, interesting themes with the real world compared to Star Wars movies all the time it felt very Casablanca that that point to me yeah um, okay let, let's talk a little bit about the film um, did uh, you know this film production has been obviously well written about uh, you know Lord and Miller or the original directors uh, they were late into the production and removed and replaced with Ron Howard who came in and reportedly shot uh, 70% of the footage that we see in this final film uh, I think it's worth mentioning because I, I didn't feel like certain scenes were Lord and Miller or certain scenes were Ron Howard I couldn't tell the difference I wanted to, to hear what you guys thought I felt very much the the DNA of the film that I that I felt the most was Lawrence Kasdan with John Kasdan's references throughout more than Ron <laughs> Howard or Lord and Miller to be honest for me. Red, I think a lot of the comedy um, involving L three is a Lord and Miller thing. Um, See, I would have thought that, but then you know, there's the comedy of that starts at. Um... When they go to meet Lando, right, and L three is outside that bot battle, yeah, uh, and uh, Clint Howard is the person that is orchestrating that bot battle, and you know that's obviously a scene that Ron Howard shot, and now Lord Miller. I don't know. I'm not saying that all the comedy that L three had was Ron Howard yeah, because no, it no, obviously no, yeah, isn't, no, but yeah, certainly not all of it. But I, but like uh, the one that stands out to me, and I, I talked to somebody else about this. Um, uh, Mike Ryan and I had a conversation about it where the when L3 is unlocking or sawing through the gate to get to the Millennium Falcon and she's like trying to get them not to look at her as if she were like somebody who is like peeing and has stage fright about it by peeing in public. It's such a weird thing that doesn't feel like Star Wars all feels like a Lord and Miller bit. Um, you know, and you know, you know they, what? Now, now that you mentioned that, I didn't 
I didn't notice that while you know in my three re- rewatches of the film. But yeah, that is that totally could be a Lord Miller thing. Yeah, and I think even the you know the the implied uh, you know sexual relationship stuff with Lando and L three uh, feels like more of a Lord and Miller thing. Like I like I'm sure that the su- the the subtext of the the romance between them was there, but I think being a little bit more uh, obvious about it, the conversation between Kira and L three might have been something that Lord and Miller concocted. Yeah, well, and to be honest, it seems like for them to have got this film finished in 10 months, a lot of the action set pieces like would have had to have already been through pre-visualization, and ILM had to have already been working on that stuff for Ron Howard to step in and finish this quickly on a, a film of this scale. So I definitely think there's stuff there, but I think Ron Howard was able to massage it into a piece where you couldn't see the seams as much as you could with, say, Joss Whedon in Justice League. Um, yeah, for sure. I I talked to Ron Howard at at the junket. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. But he talks uh, a little bit about uh, you know that this unusual process of coming in late in production and uh, what that means. And it, really, to break it down, it, we played it on the podcast last week. But it, it seemed like he it was more of like you know he's coming into a production that was already set with cast, crew, you know designs, and he's playing with those toys. That you know, so uh, th- th- that was kind of how he put it. Um, let's talk. Okay, let's get let's break into d- details of uh, of the actual film. Uh, Hans Dice, um, Brad, I-, I know you have some stuff to say about this. Uh, d- d- do you think this has a- any make- makes them mean any less or more? It's it's somewhere in in the middle because, uh, and I'm I'm I was frustrated by this because I saw several outlets writing headlines that said. Solo, a Star Wars story, explains the significance of Han's dice. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It makes them slightly more significant because he hands them off to Kira and he gets them back. And we see that he carries them around everywhere with him. But there's no explanation whatsoever as to why he carries them around. The The old Legends explanation used to be that they were the dice that helped him win the Millennium Falcon. But we know that that's not the case based on what happens in this movie. And he has these dice from the very first scene that we see him because the speeder that he steals after he jacks that vial of coaxium in the beginning of the movie, he takes the dice and puts them on, you know, the the rearview mirror, what what would be the rearview mirror area of the speeder. So he has them and he, you know, he considers them a memento of some sort, but we have no idea why or where they came from. So it's, yes, it gives them a little more significance, but not in any way where we understand what they mean to him. It's just, it's just something that he carries around. It it feels like that Lawrence Kasdan style of filmmaking where he'll or of storytelling where he'll drop a line or drop uh, significance to an object or something that we're supposed to imply has meaning to the character, but not necessarily to us. Um, for me, going through the rest of the Star Wars saga, you notice the only other time we see dice are in Phantom Menace with Watto and Qui-Gon in the wager over Anakin and Shmi. And you see that the force easily subverts the luck uh, the, that dice are supposed to represent to someone like like Han. And so when you kind of contrast that and connect some dots, granted, uh, you have to do some dot connecting to, to arrive. But when Han is saying, you know, I don't believe in luck and these dice are sort of around in this representation of him. Uh, and then you see that the force can so easily subvert luck 
and even Han is subverting his own luck and sort of making his own destiny at the end of this film with how he wins the Falcon, that uh, it makes you wonder if Han really is just a, a, a Jedi of luck rather than the Force, or and, and if are those two things even different? Hmm. That, that's an interesting I, reading that I did not think about. I do, yeah, I do like that contrast um, between, yeah, between Han, you know, relying on luck and you know Luke, you know, relying on the Force to guide him once he meets Obi Wan or whatnot. That's that's something interesting. Um, but I feel like for him to carry those around, like there's got to be some kind of significance to him. Like maybe he got them from his his father or yeah, you know, something like that. I, I more stories to tell. Yeah, I, I don't want to touch too far onto this because I know you guys talked about it on the podcast on Friday. But L3's legacy and the weirdness that this kind of story puts her in, uh, you know, I I know uh, when I was at the junket, uh, Brian, I think it was you that kind of explained yeah. to me uh, how like the death and uh, the I guess rebirth of L3 in the Millennium Falcon actually has an echo in the original trilogy uh yeah so it has a number of them actually i went back and rewatched the trilogy post solo and you can see that that screen that panel readout that uh where she maps the maw and the kessel uh that's front and center in all the shots of the cockpit from a new hope forward uh, so, so there's that but you've also got 3po sort of arguing with the falcon and empire and his line I think very directly re- references her where he says, you know, uh, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. And Jason Fry doubled down on it further in the last Jedi novelization where he's got this snippet of a scene told from R2's perspective where R2's like, there's three different droid brains inside the Falcon, and one of them likes dirty jokes and this kind of thing, and that's the only way you can coax that that particular part of the Falcon to do what you want is to like engage with it as a person. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's funny. Um, At at the same time though, I do find myself a bit troubled by it simply because it almost makes Han kind of a jerk for taking the Falcon away from Lando. Like obviously Lando's willing to risk it because he bets it during the games that he um, knows he'll win. But for Han to take back the Falcon, knowing that L3 is in the ship, is kind of like an even bigger, you know. Well, he, he also says in that line, like, she, he's, doesn't he say something like, she likes me more or something? Yeah, the feeling's mutual. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she belongs with me. Or she belongs yeah. with me. Like I, like, I didn't get any indication that L3 liked Han. No, no, I don't, I don't think that's a reference to L3. I think that's just the reference to referring I know, to the, I know. the ship as she, like, you know, captains constantly do with their ships. But... So the more the more troubling aspect to me is that there's a whole like long time period where neither Lando nor Han are captain of the Millennium Falcon and L3 is just stuck in that ship. <laughs> I think there's something really exciting about her ending too though where she realizes that her call the call for her her life for her existence is rebellion and she's part of the crew that makes that shot against Death Star 2. Yeah, but at the same time, she's also a droid that was calling for rebellion and wanted droid rights, and now all she is is something that is used to help humans out, and she's stuck in this thing. where and like Dr- Dramatic uh, irony. Well, and it's true, <laughs> true, 
but the, and I think the biggest problem I have with it is if it was so easy for them to quickly transfer her consciousness into the ship, why wouldn't it have been just as easy for them to transfer her consciousness into another droid and save her that way? There's there's a lot of interesting stuff in um, the Poe Dameron comic kind of doubles down on the idea that you can just keep copies of droids personalities, which is how Mr. Bones kind of makes a, an appearance. Mr. Bones from the Aftermath books, which is a murderous battle droid, makes an appearance in the Poe Dameron comics. So there's a, a huge gap of time where maybe when Lando hands the Falcon over to Han, maybe they do make a copy of her and put her put her out there. But then that raises a lot of interesting science fiction ideas where which is the real L3s? Is, <laughs> is there one a clone? Is there one in the ship? Uh, how does that work? Well, it, it, do we even know that L3 is a sentient being and this isn't just a, a, a programming well, I mean, she has uh, that, that. We get into that gets into the whole idea of what what is real and what do you consider real. You know, like yeah. the Westworld question, because like she clearly had personality and she made choices of her own. Uh, you know, I mean, she she was the one who created the droid revolution on Kessel. You know, that wasn't something that someone told her to do. She just did that of her own volition. You know, I, so I, I wonder how much of that was actually in the original script because I, I know at the press conference, which Brian, you were at, I think uh, yeah. someone asked if, uh, you know, who created that line in the movie of equal rights. And that was uh, the, the writers. I think John credited it to, to, to the actress, Phoebe, um, which makes yeah. me almost think that that was like an impromptu line. And they decided to make that a bigger plot in the movie that might have not been there. Which makes me wonder if that was Lord and Miller because it feels like a lot of what Ron Howard was brought on to do was to stick to the script rather than do a lot of that improvising. Yeah, but uh, it, it definitely seems weird in a movie where at the end she's her consciousness or her data or whatever you want to say is put into the Millennium Falcon to be stored forever and it's kind of like this Black Mirror-ish thing. Um, it seems weird to end, you know, a character that has been talking the whole movie about equal rights and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it just seems very, very weird, but, uh, let's move on to Emphy's nest. Uh, this is a cool new group of characters introduced in this film, uh, kind of like space pirates, uh, in the end of the film, they do this big reveal, uh, takes off, uh, the girl takes off her helmet. I don't, uh, her, is she Emphy or is, is she the daughter? Do we know? I think she's the daughter of the original Enfys Nest is what I think she implies. But, I mean, her name could very well be Enfys as well. Enfys. Um, yeah. Uh, and that moment is almost played as, like, this huge reveal. And almost every time I've seen the movie, people have come up to me after and been like, is that someone I should know, like, you know, from the comics or from Rebels? Or, you know, is like it's, it's played as, like, this big moment. But I think the moment is just that uh, she is a young kid right yeah 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 because yeah. I, I when i first saw it too i was confused as well i thought that there was something i was missing either from star wars rebels or something like that where they were referencing you know the offspring of a character that we were supposed to know or, or something like that because it's yeah when she takes off the mask it's pretty dramatic and i guess the reveal is kind of shocking that it's a young girl but you know i, I don't know maybe it's it's uh I don't know, a good way of showing the progress that we're making that we're not really surprised when a cool character like that is a girl. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I think that, that, that is the case. Um, 
you know, at first I thought it was like, oh, could this be Val's daughter in some way? Because, you know, it's dar- darker skin. Too. And, you know, my my head is like, why would Hollywood cast two dark-skinned actresses? <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that's bad uh, to, to think that way. But I always uh, underestimate Hollywood, I think, in, in those ways. Um, but, okay, so l- let's talk about Enfys uh, crew because there's a bunch of people we have seen before. Uh, Brian, can you break it down for us? Yeah, so there's there's at least two members of her crew that we have seen in prior movies. Uh, one of them is is one of the two tubes sort of brother or eggmates from Rogue One, uh, and I'm not sure if it's Edrio or Benthic, and I'm not sure that there's been any clarification of that. The other is Warwick and, and, and that, that, That's one of Saw's men. Right? Yeah, one of Saw's men. So presumably, this group will either dissolve into or, or lead into. Uh, Saw's group of partisans, and this is sort of the proto version of that. And the other is Warwick Davis's character, uh, Weasel, who we first saw in Phantom Menace in Watto's box during the pod race, and he sort of lost his fortune when Anakin won that race. And in the Legends material, he became an arms dealer, uh, but now it looks like he he joined the the proto rebellion. And I think that that was probably not necessarily done with a plan in mind. It was more like, well, Warwick Davis has already shown his face in these Star Wars movies, and the timeline here works about right. Let's just make it that that same character. <laughs> so you're saying we're not going to get a Star Wars story based on uh, that character in the near future? I hope we do, and I hope it's called Weasel, uh, <laughs> and I hope Ron Howard directs it, and it's just going to be the spiritual successor to Willow. <laughs> um, is there anything else to point out here in the, this this emphasis nest? Um, yeah, so so the, the the whole gang is based on the Cloud Riders, which is the very very first EU story that Marvel Comics told as soon as they were done with the uh, the adaptation of A New Hope in seventy seven seventy eight, and so this was this swoop gang called the Cloud Riders, which is what Emphasis gang is called. And originally, it cast Han Solo in a Seven Samurai-like story where these moisture farmers or dirt farmers or whatever hired him and a group of other uh, mercenaries, including Jackson the Green Rabbit and a uh, a, a Jedi named Don Juan Quixote uh, to defend them <laughs> against the Cloud Riders. And they That's took a little the, on the nose. For reference. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's spelled really weird too. So I guess maybe in the seventies they thought kids just wouldn't understand the literary allusions to that. Um, but uh, so so the Cloud Riders originated from that, and the aesthetic of their swoops and their speeders and whatnot came directly from those early Marvel comics. Okay, I think a lot of people are probably here because they want to hear what we're gonna say about Maul, who is um, revealed to be the head of Crimson Dawn, or is, is he? Is he the head of Crimson Dawn? Is that what it's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and uh, you know, Kira is going to meet him, and Datamir, uh, which is where we, we we see him first in Rebels, right? Um, we see him first in Rebels, actually, on the planet Malakor. He's or been Malachor, stuck yeah, yeah. there, marooned by uh, Sith Inquisitors, who sort of lost track of him, and his ship is destroyed, and he's he's marooned on this Sith temple. But we do go back to sort of his office on Dathomir. There was a genocide on Dathomir in Clone Wars where General Grievous and 
the separatists sort of killed everyone there. So Dathomir sort of an empty planet and Maul went back there during this time to sort of research what his family lineage was doing with the force. And we did get a glimpse of his office or, or his cave, I guess is more a, a better term than his office in, in rebels. He takes Ezra there and uses that dark magic, that stone table to possess Cain and Jairus. And, uh, you know, so so we do have an idea of what Dathomir would look like, but it's not any sort of teeming metropolis where he'd want to run an underworld unless he's just hiding from Palpatine. Because the last time Palpatine found out he was alive, he came to kill him personally. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, for pe- this might even be very confusing for people who have not watched uh, Clone Wars or Rebels, because you know, last time we saw Maul on the big screen, he was cut in two and falling down a what a shaft. Um, yeah, how did he survive? Uh, he was literally too angry to die. Uh, <laughs> the the rage and the dark side of the force kept him alive, and apparently Dathomiri physiology allows this, and he ended up in a trash bin that transported him to a planet called Lotho Minor, which was uh, it, it was basically the the dump of the galaxy. So the entire planet was just sort of the dumping grounds where they'd bring trash. And he lived there in obscurity and in mental uh, distress. He was not well. He was completely uh, shell-shocked, uh, PTSD to the nth degree until his brother who was briefly Count Dooku's apprentice and and Sith enforcer uh, was betrayed by Dooku and was sent on a mission to go find his brother and at that point Maul came back uh, his mother who was a powerful force user uh, helped clear his mind and took the spider legs he'd constructed in his madness away and gave him more reasonable realistic mechanical legs uh, very much like the ones we saw in uh, Solo. And he yeah, tried for, to open for up. For people who, who have only seen this film once, it's hard to catch uh, if you're not looking for it. But that first shot, they kind of like uh, you see his legs, which are mechanical. Yeah, yeah. That was the first tip off. Like when I saw the close up and there were mechanical legs and then that first breath of Sam Witwer's, it, it it all clicked into me. I was with my son at that premiere, and I was nudging him excitedly, and he was like, Dad, why are you touching me? Um, <laughs> but um, so at that point, he actually took control of all the syndicates in the underworld in the galaxy to open up a new front in the war, and Palpatine sort of put some of that down, but Maul was able to escape with the help of the Mandalorians and some factions of the underworld that were still loyal to him. Uh, but the Pike Syndicate, which is something he did take over that we see on Kessel here in this movie, left him. And that's why there's that fragile truce between them, uh, because they left because Maul was unstable and they didn't want to be part of what he then called his shadow collective. So what is he doing here? Because like, we really don't get a sense of what, Crimson Dawn is doing either collecting that what that fuel to basically because it's worth money. Um, I think the fuel's worth money, but I I wonder. Uh, I I think that 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 idea of what it is he's trying to do, other than underworld crap, is still a little nebulous. <laughs> Especially uh, since we don't really know what he was doing during this time, other than trying to hide from inquisitors. Um. 
because there's we get a glimpse of what was the Siege of Mandalore where the Jedi, right on the eve of Order 66, show up on Mandalore to take control of that planet back from Maul, um, which we got in the Ahsoka book. And then in the canon, we lost track of him completely until we find him in Rebels. So this is the first glimpse of something between those two moments. Yeah, and it should be like this seems like an obvious setup for sequels, right? Like this isn't a lot of people are calling this a cameo, and I think people don't understand what the word cameo means. Like this is not a cameo. This is a plot point. This is a this is a big reveal that's setting up something more. Uh, question is what. Uh, which is very interesting because when I talked to Kathleen Kennedy at the Force Awakens junket, which was uh, two and a half years ago, she told me straight out that the anthology films would not be setting up sequels of any kind. That the standalone uh, that the standalone films were standalone films that would not have sequels. And now two and a half years later, uh, you know right. that's clearly different. So I'm I'm kind of wondering uh, what changed. Uh, I, I did do an interview with uh, with Ron Howard and the Kazdans, and uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, the interesting thing is Howard talks about when he first got the script for this, that in the script it just said boss. It didn't say who it was, and uh, he had assumed that Lucasfilm and Disney had chosen someone for this role and he was instead presented with a list of characters it could possibly be that he would choose and on top of that list was Maul uh Kasdan say that that is uh, or John Kasdan says that that was who he wanted all along and he kind of like put uh meant like you know hints towards it all throughout the movie um but uh I kind of wonder if in the Lord and Miller version if it was a more uh, simple kind of like reveal like just a more of a cameo like you know it was job of the hut or something um do you have any thoughts either of you uh i you know i talked to john kasdan um at the after party and he said he said as far as the sequel idea that his hope was that they wrote it open ended enough but there were there hadn't been plans but hopefully the movie does well enough to to get one um, so I think it was their plan to write something that could open up to that, to that world. Um, and I think if it, I believe, uh, I was told, um, that Lord and Miller were proponents of Maul as well. Um, and you can see that through all the drafts of the screenplay, uh, as far as what we ended up getting on screen, with the references to Teres Kasi and the references to the Pike Syndicate and how that worked and how uh, Voss has a Sith holocron in his office. Uh, uh, there's a lot of clues to that. And Crimson Dawn sounds like the sort of uh, name a red-bladed lightsaber user would come up with for a, for a criminal organization. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but if you go through the, the canon timeline it wouldn't really make sense to be anybody else. I know some people kind of held out hope that it was Snoke somehow, but I think that would have made far less sense. Hmm. I mean, it could have been one of the huts now, right? Like it's a criminal organization uh, operating away from the empire because you can't have the empire. They're stealing from the empire at one point. Right. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, another th thing that Ron Howard told me, uh, which you can read in our uh, piece on slashfilm.com, I'll link in the show notes, is that uh, they reshot the mall stuff. 
that initially it was more low key that uh, not enough people kind of uh, caught on to who it was. Um, which I, I to him said, oh, the lightsaber, and he was like, yeah, the lightsaber. So I, I think initially he didn't light up that lightsaber. He probably didn't uh, take off the uh, the hood, um, but they they added that in to, so that audiences would more audiences would would get it. Uh, Brad, we haven't heard from you in a uh, in, in a while. Uh, what do you think this means for possible sequels? You mean uh, specifically with the the Darth Maul reveal? Yes. And um, and Kira, obviously, yeah. Kira you know, it's you know it, it's hard to tell. I um I feel like it would be interesting, you know, because because with Kira, it's obvious that she's not betraying Han Solo because she herself is bad. This is clearly just uh, a way for her to survive. You know, she she's stuck in it, and she knows that if she were to make a break, that this is Darth Maul that she's dealing with, and she's not going to be able to escape easily and just you know fly off into the sunset. Uh, with Han on the Millennium Falcon. So she's clearly doing what she needs to to survive and doesn't seem to have any bad intentions. So I wonder if, you know, her story will be just as important as this continues as far as maybe taking down Crimson Dawn, since um, from what I understand, that's not necessarily something that continues too far into the timeline of the original trilogy. Is that correct? Um, it's not, uh, it's not one of the crime syndicates that we've got a lot of information about. And yeah, I don't believe there's any traces of the, or mention of them. Yeah. Uh, as we get into the original trilogy, I think. But that, that, that the, doesn't mean that they don't, they aren't around, right? No, that, that's true. But I, I felt like as we ended this film, there were battle lines being drawn where Jabba and Maul already were at odds during the Shadow Collective situation and it could be very interesting to see a story where Maul and and Jabba are going head to head and their two top favorite lieutenants that they're dealing with are Kira and Han and they're at odds yeah I was was gonna say that because it would be cool if uh, whatever job Hutt wants him to do is something that Maul and Crimson Dawn also have their eyes on and so Kira has to do what she has to to survive, and maybe that means actually going against Han, um, which could create an interesting dynamic for them. Um, I think the thing. Oh, and, per- and by the way, when, when I was uh, waiting for my interview with uh, the Kasdans, I was outside. I'm not sure which outlet was interviewing them at the time, but they asked him if uh, the Tatooine uh, mention was for Jabba the Hutt, and. John Caston said, "No, not Jabba the Hut, another Hut." So, oh, it's, yeah. maybe Zorba the Hut, <laughs> um, or you know, his his son uh, Rhoda the Hut has completely vanished from the canon since his appearance in the Clone Wars animated film. Yeah, I well, and then so I do wonder too with Darth Maul is since this obviously takes place before the uh, storyline that we see with him in Star Wars Rebels and Obi Wan. Since there is talk of an Obi-Wan movie, do you think that they might try and recreate or give us what happened in Rebels? Rather Because obviously they're not going to retcon it. Yeah. They're not going to like erase it, but could they remake it in live action form? Well, th- this is the most interesting thing about this reveal is I almost feel like they made this reveal either not knowing that Rebels was doing that death. Because you don't introduce someone like Maul into this this uh storyline this continuing storyline if 
he already has like an end to him in in a dramatic way in the the animated series. I almost feel like that animated series was probably already in the works uh, when. Um... Well, I think I think the story group would be there to to say like, hey, you might not want to do this because of this, but uh, we do see him get. You know, in in the cartoon series, they make it pretty definitive that Maul spent all that time looking for Kenobi and didn't find him until he was able to manipulate Ezra into bringing them together. So I'm not sure that unless they do recreate it, there's another opportunity for them to meet. Uh, Unless uh, the movie's structurally different and there's some sort of flashbacks to the Clone Wars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the most interesting thing about it is Han in A New Hope has clearly not seen the Force, right? He is not a believer in the Force. So I, I don't think he would, as a character, having encountered a Force user in, you know, a former Sith like Maul. Which so, is why I think Kira would be the person interfacing with him. Or Jabba, who does know um, who does know what, what this... I mean, Jabba's dealt with Jedi a lot. And I love one of the original lines that Jabba had in the screenplay, and it's still in the novelization is when Luke introduces himself as a Jedi Knight, Jabba fires back, I was killing your kind back when that meant something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of wondering, well, first of all, uh, the box office for this film is not, not, uh, not I mean, it's, it's not good. Uh, it, I'm not sure it's good enough to, to spawn a sequel, but I'm, I'm wondering if they were ever going to do a sequel. Like, I wonder if... Uh, you know, the plan originally was to do like, you know, a Lando movie as a sequel and have Han in the background of that and have this continuing storyline of, you know, Maul and Kira and kind of do the like the Marvel thing where you're connecting, you know, the overall storyline. I mean, I, I guess Star Wars was doing it before Marvel. But <laughs> um, do you, Brian, do, do you have any sense of like what y- you think they're doing? Well, um, we do know that Boba Fett. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that, though nothing's specifically confirmed. But we know Boba Fett's been working with Jabba on Tatooine for years uh, based on the comic books and the special edition in A New Hope kind of places him with Jabba f- before the events of Empire. And he's there just hanging out after he's caught Han through all of Jedi that if we do get a Boba Fett movie, that it could be set post-Solo and that, yeah, uh, Solo could be a side character and they're both working for Jabba the Hutt. Brad, any thoughts on this? Which part? <laughs> uh, wh- where the story could continue. Like, do you think now that Solo did not do too well at the box office, do you think they will just like relegate this storyline of the, the 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 lingering threads of Maul and Kira to like comic books and video games and novels? Or do you think we'll get a continuation in some other standalone movie? Well, I think the best approach might be to, I mean, with, a, with that talk of a Lando movie, you know, is to maybe continue this uh, thread as far as the story arc is concerned, through other characters. So if you have a Lando movie, then Han would have the role uh, that Lando does in Solo, A Star Wars Story, where he just pops up for a little bit and then disappears. And then, you know, maybe whatever the next one is, you know, maybe it focuses on, maybe it's it's the Boba Fett movie, and that's another movie where you have Han and Lando maybe pop up, but the movie is mostly about Boba Fett. So if anything, you know, you wouldn't have to continue this as, 
just a solo franchise, but more so the idea of this being a almost like a, uh, a the underworld trilogy. Oh yeah, yeah, the underworld trilogy. Or, yeah, this this little like prequel universe that where of, of events that take place before you know a new hope. Um, the, to to finish this off, let's talk a little bit about uh, Easter eggs and and uh, fun references in this film. I think pro- probably the the uh, the one that. I Cotton was super excited about uh, was in um, Paul Bettany's character's office. You could see uh, the fertility idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which uh, is cool because obviously it's a Lucasfilm thing. And, uh, you know, Star Wars has been referenced in Indiana Jones on like the hieroglyphics in the background. Uh, Oh, no, it was really cool for me to see uh, above that is something that looks like a crystal skull, which is not a crystal skull, but actually a reference to uh, an EU novel. Yeah, Han Solo and the Lost Legacy, uh, which was one of the original Brian Daly Han Solo books that came out in 79, 80 or so. Um, there's a lot of Indiana Jones references in it, though. Um, there's not just the idol, but there's also uh, one of Dryden's enforcers is named uh, Tot, which is the <laughs> the German enforcer who has the his last name's actually Ra, and Tot is the character who had the staff of Ra burned into his hand. That's um, fun. And Kira name name checks him, and I feel like the Kessel escape is is uh, if you remember, Kasdan was tasked to write Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the minecart chase was originally supposed to be part of that movie, and it got separated out into Temple of Doom. And there's so much of that feeling in in the the Kessel escape that I wonder if if Kasdan was channeling some of those original notes from what his version of what the minecart chase or the 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 slave escape was going to be or are, are, are in there. But, uh, yeah, there's the, the amount of references are ridiculous. Like Gleon Psalm, the planet that, uh, Val and Beckett want to retire to is the planet that Kit Fisto, the green skinned Jedi that smiles all the time and was killed by Palpatine in his office in revenge of the Sith. That's the planet he's from, which is, as close to the tropical paradise planet as you can get yeah. in Star Wars. Or there's a uh, Galaxy's Edge reference. Uh, L3 mentions Black Spire, uh, which was just which Lando announced. couldn't have gotten to without her help. Yeah, he couldn't even get to Disneyland without her help. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the village that, that, uh, that Galaxy's Edge is recreating is Black Spire Outpost. And uh, there's it's chock full of references and Easter eggs. Like we could spend two hours talking about all of them. Yeah, You, you mentioned before the Terakazi. That, that's something I yeah. think a lot, lot of people catch because a lot of people, you know, played that game on PlayStation. Uh, but for those who haven't, can you explain this reference? Well, hold on. So, wait, actually, oh, hold on. Yeah. I, Cause that's the one that I wanted to talk about. Okay. Because, go for it, Brad. Yeah. Please. I'm actually going to work on a little, just like a mini story about it on slash room eventually. But I played, uh, the PlayStation One game, Star Wars: Masters of Terrascasi, nonstop. It was a Star Wars fighting game that was basically the 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 Star Wars version of Mortal Kombat, where you could play as Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewbacca, Darth Vader. They even had uh, characters like Mara Jade as unlockable hidden characters, and you you were it was just one of those simple fighting games where you were just on a platform and you fought each other, and you know each of the characters had certain special moves like. 
if you charged up your energy enough after you know landing uh, certain punches and kicks, then uh, you could throw your lightsaber if you were Luke or Mara Jade, or uh, if you were Han and you, your energy was high enough, you would uh, rapid fire off a bunch of blaster shots that would shoot the, the, your opponent into the air and end with like a, a huge blaster shot and knock them out of the arena. And it was it was such a fun game. It was the graphics are not good, and it's it's you know it is a. Uh, not a great game by any means, but I played it endlessly as a kid just because I love Star Wars so much, and it was it was so much fun. And so to hear Kira mention Tarascasi as this fighting style that she employed to take down the person who was running the Kessel Mines was just such a cool and super obscure throwaway reference that I couldn't believe they they included in the movie. It it goes a layer deeper too in all of the Legends content, um, featuring Darth Maul. He's a practitioner of Tarascasi. So when you trace the lineage of where she would have learned it from, and she says Dryden taught her, and where would Dryden learn it? And his fighting style is two uh, double-bladed like brass knuckles with, with serrated edges, and he fights in that sort of same florid style that, that Maul does, that they, they traced those links all the way back to Maul too, which is another one of those random clues that you have to be looking for deeply to understand why that might be a, a, a an indication that Maul is the only person that could have shown up in that hologram. It, it, was there any other references or Easter eggs that either do you uh, really... You, you know, actually, one I want to point out is um, Anthony Daniels, who plays uh, C-3PO, is in the movie in the part where Chewbacca is saving... The other Wookiees originally it was reported that he was playing one one of the other Wookiees, but he's actually if you watch it, you can actually see him. He's a human that is kind of assisting them in a way to, to escape. And he he actually has lines too. He's got speaking lines. Um, yeah, you hear he, him in in, in uh, repeated viewings. I have definitely heard the lines. Yeah. Um, so that was nice that he gets speaking. He's had speaking lines in every Star Wars film, and that that streak hasn't been broken. Uh, which is nice. Um, the my other favorites were the references Lando made to all of his books. The Lando uh, Chronicles. Yeah, the Lando Chronicles. But he he mentions so there's three of them: the the Flame Wind of Ocean, the Mind Harp of Sheru, and the Star Cave of Thon Boca. And he mentions the stories of all three of those books over the course of the movie. Um, and and that made me really happy because this movie felt very much like those early. Brian Daly, uh, L. Neil Smith, Han and Lando adventures that we got before we had really even any other movies, uh, or at least certainly not anything beyond Return of the Jedi. It's interesting that they made all this, you know, extended universe not canon. Uh, they made it legends, and slowly but surely, they're kind of incorporating uh, whatever bits they want or need, uh, or just you know for fun into the canon by uh, you know referencing. Yeah. Them. Well, and they've changed things about it too, right? So this movie recasts L3 as the droid Lando had on those adventures rather than Vufi Ra, the really weird alien disguised as a robot that he was carrying in, in those books. Yeah. You know, stuff like that where they're, they're, they're bringing in what they need to and leaving the rest behind. Um, one last thing. We had a story on the site from HT detailing some deleted scenes that were not included in this film. Uh, Brad... Can you tell us about them? Yeah, so um, as with you know any movie, there are s- scenes that don't end up making the cut. 
and especially mo- a movie that you reshoot 70 percent of the film right exactly <laughs> you know uh there's bound to be some stuff that ends up on the uh the cutting room floor if you will so uh one of the um more interesting ones we, and we talked a bit about how it would have been interesting to see more time that han spent uh working for the imperial army and whatnot is apparently there's a scene uh, involving Han Solo where we actually get to see him where he was going through aerial training because he wanted to be a pilot at the Imperial Academy. But as he mentions in the movie, he ended up getting kicked out for having a mind of his own. And so this scene actually would have shown him doing the aerial training and then getting kicked out, being relegated to becoming one of the infantry who is just, you know, troops on the ground. Um, So apparently... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was going to say that there was a, a cameo for an Easter egg that got cut from those scenes as well. Yeah, um, the, the two characters, uh, Tag and Bink, yeah, like this, this dim-witted duo, uh, and like they happen to appear in the background of several famous Star Wars scenes just by happenstance. Um, and so that would have actually allowed uh, um, the Kazans to be appearing in the movie themselves. But in, and they actually <laughs> intended... Uh, they, they they made sure that was their cameo because they assumed that scene wouldn't get cut, and of course it ended up getting cut anyway. <laughs> that is funny. Um, and then th- there's also uh, apparently a completely different uh, introduction to Chewbacca that where Han would have met Chewbacca in an entirely different way. Um, so there we see in the movie, you know, they get they get met up because Han gets thrown into this you know kind of prison after uh, Beckett makes it seem like he is a deserter. And Chewbacca is this, you know, seems like he's this monster chained up in there. Which, which, by the way, isn't it weird that Chewbacca, like, I guess, ate people before Han got thrown in there? I, no? I mean, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, you got you to survive when you're, you know, chained up in, on, you know, a mud planet. So, but, so apparently, uh, originally, uh, Han had, uh, be, did become a pilot and he, uh, ran away from the empire and he ended up crashing a ship into a hangar and he was brought before a tribunal that would sentence him to uh mimban the or mimban however you pronounce it the, the mud planet and that's where he would meet chewy and i guess the they would would be partnered together and they would go um go up against imperial mech walkers and apparently chewy was originally supposed to rescue han and Han would have kind of been the one who was more in debt to Chewie than Chewie being, you know, in debt to Han Solo for, you know, saving him. It's funny, Mimban there is a huge deep cut reference, too. That's where the first EU novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, was set. And it's interesting that it was set on this planet that was supposed to be this fog-shrouded mud planet because... Alan Dean Foster was told to write the book as though it could be the sequel to Star Wars if Star Wars bombed and George Lucas wanted to make another one, which is why it doesn't have a space battle and it's all set in this thing where on a planet where you could shoot on a soundstage and just fog it up and make it seem as though it goes on forever. And it was really interesting to see that Bradford Young photographed the planet in exactly that way. Uh, that does it for today's extended edition of Slash Film Daily. Uh, Brian, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, if they wanted to, they can follow me on Twitter at Swankmatron, and I can direct them to wherever wherever else. But you can read about my, my Star Wars writings uh, with you on Slash Film at StarWars.com, at Sci-Fi, uh, occasionally HowStuffWorks.com. And, uh, yeah, if they... Uh, 
if they ask, I will direct them to anything uh, just just on Twitter. So, like I said, at SwankMotron. Well, it was great having you here to, uh, you know, give us your knowledge on a galaxy yeah, far, far I'm, away. I'm, as a huge Star Wars fan, I am in awe of how encyclopedic your knowledge is of the Star Wars universe. Like, there's, there's stuff that you know that I've never even heard of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's a curse, too, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brad, where can people find more of your work? I'm always writing on SlashFilm.com. You can also check me out on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And I've got my own podcast called Go Flix Yourself on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And uh, please go take a look at the show notes. We have links to all the coverage on Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, including Brian's, mine, Brad's, everybody. Like everything we talked about today, there's a bit more that you can learn and dive into on SlashFilm.com. Uh, this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question, comment, concern, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.